This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey, this is Positive Parenting, and I'm Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Boys with behavioral and emotional difficulties are likely to grow into young men who are alienated, aggressive, and possibly even violent. Yet these problems are often misdiagnosed by parents, teachers, and school psychologists as being caused by masculine identity, when the real causes are rooted in much deeper issues. That's according to my guest for this part of today's show, Michael Gurian, who has studied and served children and their families for 30 years and is actually credited with sparking the boys' movement. Michael draws on research from psychology, neuroscience, genetics, toxicology, and epidemiology, and he also includes examples from his own clinical counseling practice. He combines all of that and paints a rather disturbing portrait of an educational, legal, and medical system that turns a blind eye toward the real problems that are facing young adult males whose inability to be properly socialized places them at a high risk of falling to the lower rungs of society. When we start peeling back the layers of male distress in America, he says, we find at least 20 million males who are jobless or underemployed, ripped from families or leaving them hopelessly, committing suicide, shooting one another or being shot, failing out of school, and failing at marriage. We'll start talking about what we can do to save our sons when positive parenting continues right after this. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Michael Gurian, who's the author of Saving Our Sons, A New Path for Raising Healthy and Resilient Boys. Michael, thanks for joining us. Well, Armin, thanks for having me. So let's start off with having you set the stage a little bit here for us, which is what is going on with boys, and why are they seeming to be fading in pretty much every area? Well, yeah, I mean, some boys obviously are doing very well, um, but the large chunks just every year, things get worse and worse. And I, so my work, I always look at nature, nurture, and culture. Those are the three elements, and they all, all three work together. So Saving Our Sons dissects this, you know, in a very friendly way, nature, nurture, and culture. And then I think the nature part, um, like the neurotoxins that boys are taking in, I think those are a much larger deal than we thought. Um, the way that screens are affecting their, you know, their brains, their cells. I talk a lot about the male brain. So, right. um, you know, those things I think are really big. And there are big gaps in nurture, you know, like educational systems that don't understand them and punish them and, um, you know, and then big gaps in culture. So I think it's multi, it's it's 50 years uh, or more of, of deficiencies in the way we understand nature, nurture, and culture for boys. Well, let's go through this a little bit. I want to talk, have you talk somewhat about the 
the nature part, which you said was having to do with neurotoxins. Talk about what you mean by that. What are there these like red dye number sixteen or something like that, or, or what's what's mm. going on? What are those? Yeah, there are different levels of of these neurotoxins, you know, and and one, so red dye and chemicals coming in, uh, estrogen receptors in the food, BPA in the plastics, these things are absolutely affecting cells, male, female brain, you know, girls too, they're affecting, they affect the sperm and the eggs, so so while the genotype of guys doesn't change, you know, guys are still XY, right, I mean, they're still Y chromosome, but the phenotype, so little, little ragged edges show up on on uh, chromosomes and get triggered and uh, so you know one in 41 boys with autism you know that obviously did not exist 50 years ago um, so it this is that that's a that's a big deal I mean to take a long time to dissect that but it's a big deal so I am begging people if they can afford to go organic you know go go organic so that's one level of it the food and, and that another level is the stress so there's just chronic stress that our kids are under and um, uh, some of that stress that's especially affecting social emotional development in males is um, is screen time. So those screens uh, are affecting the cortisol level of these boys and the way the dopamine works in the brain, and it's skewing their development. And they're especially pruning away in the ages of 10 to 20. Their brains are pruning away unused cells for social emotionals and retaining you know, the cells that are used for screens and video games and so on. And so we're ending up with a lot of boys who are 25, 30, and they're not growing up. So there's levels of, of neurotoxicity that we have to deal with to save this generation. Wow. And then there's the, the fact, I think, that's going on, and this probably is part of the nurture aspect of it, is it seems like for a long time the message to boys has been you're defective in some way, that there's something wrong with being a boy. Yeah, that is a huge problem. We we bought into an idea, and and by the way, I'm going to say I have two daughters. Uh, they're now 23 and 27. So, so this idea that we bought into 50 years ago to protect our daughters, I get it. It was the idea that masculinity has inherent privilege and masculinity is is bad. It's destructive and all that. So we bought into that 50 years ago. The problem is that that's the primary academic, governmental, and media paradigm. And, and it's just way too thin <laughs> because, you know, males are varied and diverse and um, we actually need masculinity. You know, it's boys who don't have fathers don't develop their the neural pathways between the limbic system, which is the emotive part of the brain, and the top of the brain as well as boys who have fathers. So clearly masculinity is important. So we have to get rid of this concept that if a boy pushes another boy into a locker, you know, he's violent. We have to get rid of that. We have to understand that males nurture each other and nurture other people physically, kinesthetically. I call it aggression nurturance. You know, there are all these levels of male love that we consider defective when they're actually, they build more resilience. You know, I don't want you to talk too much about this, but I know that you and I have been in in the same circles and have been looking a little bit at the, the supposed rape culture, which is another mm-hmm thing that people talk about a lot these days, and, and they throw around statistics about one in five females is sexually assaulted on campus, and it, it's so frustrating to see that stuff and to have read the research and to understand that those statistics are just way off. And not only that, that it, it, part of what you're talking about, the, the, the natural inclination to say that masculinity is flawed, is that these guys are not getting the basic legal rights when they're accused of something. 
Yeah, that's a, I I have um you know the one the, the second half of one of the chapters takes this thing apart because this is my first book. Saving Our Sons is my first book where I really it, it's a parenting resource absolutely, but I have two chapters where I really go into the politics because it is becoming very difficult to parent boys until we change these politics. And um, so that's one of them. And my own daughters, both of whom went through college, right, they're 27 and 23 now, they saw that statistic and they, they, just, they just said, what? <laughs> you know, it was, it was it's so untrue. Um, it doesn't deny the fact that there are females who are sexually assaulted on college campuses. That absolutely happens. Well, yes, nobody's but trying to take that away. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But the number, you know, is, is is skewed because, as you know, the way that was got set up to blast it out was to use surveys in which it was considered sexual assault if um, uh, the, the young woman had a drink. So one drink, if someone kisses her, it's sexual assault. So the whole thing got skewed. And it's part of the problem. And if we're going to save our sons, we have to go into these universities. And my chapter, it's called Cleaning Out the Minefield. We have to go into these universities and force people to really use academic rigor to study males. What's happened is they don't have to. They use academic rigor to study everything else. But when it comes to males, you know, people just go out and say things. And there are, there are some guys out there who are bad people. So, you know, you can always find a guy who has done a terrible thing. And, and that's basically it. So it's opinion and ideology pretending to be fact. Uh, and, yeah, the rape culture thing is not fact. So I want to get back to the academic side. Just forget about that, or not forget about it, but I don't want to spend too much time talking about that thing because right. it could take the entire show and, and many it's shows beyond field. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, going back to the, the other side of academia, people getting into colleges, I mean, right now you've got, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like the general makeup of student bodies, about 60, 40 female, male. Mm -hmm. And pe number of people or percentages of people getting ac uh, advanced degrees is way skewed towards females. And I, I understand that this may partly be a backlash that, that women were not as represented in certain fields and that it was considered, you know, back in my mother's day, an odd time, you know, a strange thing for a, a woman to go to college or she was only going to get married or something like that. But that doesn't make it okay to discriminate. Why is it that boys and young men are deciding that college just is not a worthwhile way to spend time. Yeah, yes, and I, I definitely, as you know, talk about this in the book and try to help people start solving this early, like back in preschool. Because what, what's happening is that the boys, um, you know, they're starting out in a system, and the, the key word in the system they're starting out in is use your words. That's the key phrase. And it starts really early in preschool. Um, so the, the, the literacy platform, what we call a verbal literacy platform, has taken over uh, education all the way through college, taken it over, and words are considered the gold standard. And that, uh, the problem with that is that the male brain only does words on the front left, and we only connect words to other parts of the brain you know, in, in the front left. Females have word centers on both sides of the brain. They connect to all other parts of the brain on both sides of the brain, you know, so it's called better verbally motives. Huh, okay. Well, the system has moved toward a whole female brain word production, and, and, and males are only doing it in a small part, and that starts way, way early. Uh, uh, yeah, so they, they start, it starts really early. So one out of, you know, only one out of five kids that are, that are kicked out of preschool or considered failures, you know, 
are female. Most are male. And people are thinking if males don't read by four or five, you know, there's something wrong with them. Uh, not understanding this, that the brains are set up differently for, for words. So I think it starts way early with, with words issues and behavior issues early. By eighth grade, a lot of these boys hate school, you know. Then they move through high school, higher dropout rate for males and females, et cetera. And then they move to college and they say, what is relevant to me about college, you know. And, and some boys should not go to college. Some should just go to vocational ed because, you know, that's what they're going to do. But there's so many boys who could go to college and are just checking out of it because it's, it's 20 years of something that becomes – it's not a fit fully for their brain, and they, you know, they fail at it as compared to the people around them, so they don't choose it. Talking to Michael Gurian, who's the author of Saving Our Sons, A New Path for Raising Healthy and Resilient Boys. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Michael. Most of my family, they never graduated high school, so I'm trying to break that barrier. My daughter, Brooklyn, was also a motivation for me to go back to school. Every day after work, went straight to school. And it paid off. At age 26, Kareem finished his high school diploma. I could not have done it alone. I see the future is really bright for me. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michael Gurian, who's the author of Saving Our Sons, A New Path for Raising Healthy and Resilient Boys. I want to get, keep on with the topic of, of education a little bit because you're talking about how girls' brains are wired to give them a little bit of an advantage or at least a facility with, with words and language. And I was right in the process for my youngest daughter, who's 13, who's going to be going to high school, looking at different high schools and looking at all of the test scores and the way things break down. And one of the schools that she's looking at is a very high-performing place, and they've got every single class and SAT and, and it, it broken down by male and female. And it was so fascinating to see. I just was looking at the math line because she's quite a math geek. And math, for the most part, the girls are doing better than the boys except when it gets to the highest level of math, when it flips and the boys are doing better than the girls. And it used to be kind of a truism that boys were naturally better at math and girls were naturally better at, at language. And, of course, people don't want to say things like any specific gender is naturally better at anything because we don't want to see it that way. But is there something about boys' brains that are giving them a little bit of an advantage when it comes to numbers? Yeah, well, actually, the advantage, yeah, the reason it shows up in the highest levels is that, is that the advantage is not in numerical calculation. Males and females worldwide test out the same in numerical calculation. Um, you know, so 2 plus 2 is 4, just calculation. So therefore, you know, we'll end up with as many female account, accountants as male accountants, numerical calculation. But the that high calculus and that stuff requires um, even more of an abstraction, and the male brain develops these areas for spatials, right? So we don't do words on the on the right. Females are doing words on the right, and they're doing spatials and mechanicals and visuals. But males are doing no words on the right. We're doing um, spatials, mechanicals, visual graphics on the right. So more of our brains are dedicated to that. And in that, that part of the brain, the spatial mechanical, the Einstein part of the brain, you know, 
um, that they dissected when Einstein died, and they said, oh, holy moly, look how big and dense that is. That part of the brain, uh, males get an, uh, an advantage in. So, so one of the reasons girls are doing you know, better than males in a lot of our, our states in, in their math scores is that so much of it's numerical calculation, which, you know, equal that. But, uh, but that high spatial, those, those high calc, that stuff, uh, you know, then that translates to things like mechanical engineering, industrial engineering. And one of the points I make in the book is that we, 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 we have to stop with the idea that we don't have gender equity if each profession doesn't have 50% females and 50% males in it, because that will never happen. We will never have 50% male kindergarten teachers. Never happen. And we will never have 50% female mechanical engineers. And I say never, I'm assuming that everyone lives. You know, I mean, right, sure. if everyone's going to live, then that's, it, we, we can't look at it that way. So when females, a lot of just brilliant females, brilliant mechanical engineers, we're even noticing that a lot of them, after five or ten years, start to drift. And they, they you know, they move toward administrative engineering or, or, or PR in the firm because their brains, and a, and a difference here is a white matter, gray matter difference, their, their asset of their brains is often that they're thinking about five to ten things at once. And they love that variety. Um, the male brain develops that dense area and can spend 30 or 40 years just in that dense area. And, you know, like mechanical engineering or like that high calc when he's 18. Uh, so, yeah, males, males should have a slight advantage there. We want more females in engineering. We're all battling for that. But we have to, we have to look at female choice as where the equity is uh, rather than 50-50. It's yeah. got to be about the choices females are making and celebrating those choices. Well, I want you to talk a little bit now about motivation. That kind of gets back to what you were talking about, about boys saying, well, I'm not going to bother with college. But how do we get boys to be motivated, more motivated anyway, to succeed and to stretch and push themselves? Mm-hmm. Well, well, two things immediately I, I want to say that, it, that are hitting at the cellular level is, one, got to cut back on screen time. Um, if kids are, you know, if, you, if we got a 13-year-old and he's, he's five, six hours in front of a screen, that actually is affecting his brain development and some of the centers that trans, translate to motivation. So that's like a number one thing to think about. A number two thing is, is how much estrogen is he taking in? Um, you know, how much meat is he eating? How, how, how much of, of the vegetables he eats are fertilized by stuff that has estrogen in it? Because that stuff lowers testosterone levels. And that that creates a kind of mild depression, and in my in my book I call it male anhedonia, which is another kind of more clinical name for this low motivation among males. So those two things are neurotoxic to motivation, and those are two things we can, you know, we can control outwardly through what he intakes. Now, in terms of inwardly trying to do motivation, um, males who t- try to do five to ten things at once are often less motivated than males who are focusing on two to three things that are deep interest areas for them. And one of the reasons that that works for them is they, they get mentors there because mentors really motivate. And mm-hmm. for males who are 10 or older, 11 or older, it's very important they have some male mentors um, because male mentors have that sort of male way of motivating them, pushing them, challenging them. And women are great, obviously, right. but, uh, but we need that. So how does that shake out in the home, though? I mean, how do we know whether the cause for a child's or a boy's lack of motivation is screen time or estrogen or something else? 
Well, well, yeah, and saving our sons kind of gives a whole bunch of stuff on that. So if people get that, they'll look at these checklists and they'll, you know, you know what I mean. They'll, it'll help right. them figure gotta it out. Right, got to give um, us a few hints, though. Right. So, so uh, I, I would pick. So I set them hourly. So I'll just have to pick an age for this. Let's say the kid is twelve. Um, if he's playing an hour of video games a night at twelve, then I would probably say to the parent, "Well, there you go. There's a clue." you probably want to cut out that hour of video games. Um, and I, I give three markers to look at. One is is physical. So he should be getting two hours of physical exercise a day. If he's not, then that may be contributing to lack of motivation. Um, his cognitives, you know, obviously if he's having trouble in school or in any way is not, not able to perform um, cognitively, academically, in achievement, then he's probably just too, too much screen time. And because what happens is the screen time the video games, they create a false dopamine reaction in, in these guys' brains, and they feel like they're really motivated because they played the video game very well. So their their brain uses up its motivation playing a video game, you know, texting back and forth, all of that. When Then when it comes to these other things that are, the brain really needs to perform at to, to be mature, it doesn't because it's already done it over here. So that would be one practical thing folks can do is look at the screen time, the video games, and see how motivated the kid is there, but he's not motivated over here, uh, like for schoolwork. Okay, that means we got to cut cut an hour or two of that stuff out. Okay. And you talked about uh, going organic to the extent that you possibly can to help with that type of, of problems. Yeah, yeah. You and I have a colleague, uh, Leonard Sachs, uh, who wrote Boys Adrift, and um, he, you know, he started making the point about 10 years ago about the tr- point that came out of the research out of Boston from Thomas Travison, you know, that, that male testosterone levels at the baseline are going down. And um, uh, so then I mentioned this also in the minds of boys, which is now 10 years old. And so in the last 10 years, when I was writing Saving Our Sons, I was tracking that. And so I've been tracking the testosterone levels, and all of them are right. I mean, the testosterone level for males at the baseline is going down and testosterone is necessary not only for motivation but it's also necessary as a battle against depression and and so people would tend to say well we want male testosterone to be lower then they won't be so violent but that's like a tiny part of it Um, uh, the biggest part of it is males need testosterone to fill up their cells and it combats depression, combats under motivation. So, right. so the organic is part of that. If you go organic, you're cutting away some of the stuff that will destroy testosterone. So, Michael, we only have just a minute left. So, give us a, a little bit of a, a way forward that parents can take to evaluate what's going on with their boys and to make sure that they've got what they need—the support and encouragement and tools—to be the best they can be. To quote the army. To go, yes, great. Well, it's going to be it's going to be a a collaboration. Uh, I mean, saving our sons is definitely about this. It's a collaboration between um, parents ex- and extended family, and then parents, extended family, and schools, and then it branches through to faith communities, right, and to any other organization. Then later to college, any organization that's helping young males. Um, uh, it's a collaboration, and in the collaboration. Sometimes one group, parents, they learn about it, and they need to help the teachers get training in the male brain. Sometimes it's the teachers learn about it and say to the parents, hey, wait, you know, ABC. So the, the key to solving this is a deep collaboration to understand males as mm-hmm. they are and what they need 
and that will have that can't happen with one person. One parent can't do it. It has to be a collaboration. Right. And check out the book, which is called Saving Our Sons: A New Path for Raising Healthy and Resilient Boys, by Michael Gurry. And Michael, thanks for joining. It's great to have you as always. Thanks, Armin. Anytime. Thank you. It's me, your heart. High blood pressure is serious. And if you think I'm just going to keep ticking away, you're wrong. I can quit whenever I want, but I like my job. Just treat me better. Maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. After all, we're in this together. Don't let your heart quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Mr. Dad, Armand Brunt, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. You know, we're gearing up for Toy Fair, where we're going to be spending four days up to our ears in toys and games. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to fill you in on what's new and exciting for 2017. But one thing we can guarantee right now, regardless of whatever else is trending, animals will never go out of style. Here are some of our current favorites. Flipazoo and Little Flipsies from Jay at Play. Flipazoos are adorable plush pillows that are perfect for snuggle time and bedtime. Each flipazoo is actually two animals in one. Just lift up the animal's tail, pull it over its head. It sounds painful, but no animals will be harmed. And you've got a completely new pet. But, of course, don't let your kids try this with your real pets. There's a cat that turns into a mouse, a dragon that turns into a unicorn, a husky who turns into a polar bear, and several others. Jay at Play also makes mini versions called Little Flipsies, Big or little, they're great for all ages. Flipazoos run about nineteen bucks, and flipsies are eight fifty at your favorite retailer or flipazoo.com. Bright bugs evolution from bright bugs. Like it or not, bugs are animals, and you'll like these ones. Bright bugs are small lights that turn on when you squeeze them and off when you release the pressure. That allows you to create the illusion of throwing the bug from hand to hand putting it in one ear and taking it out the other, and more. The app adds even more illusions, like throwing your bug into your phone. Bright bugs are best used in the dark, and you'll need to spend some time practicing to get the timing down, but once you do, the effect will, as the company says, glow your mind. They're for ages 8 and up, cost under 20 bucks at retailers everywhere, or brightbugswithaz.com. Lion Guard Leap and Roar Kion from Just Play. In the hit Disney Junior series, Kion protects the Pride Lands, and he can do the very same for you. This extremely soft plush is motion-activated. Push down on his hind end, and he'll leap. Wave your hand in front of his nose, and he'll shake his head, roar, and unleash some of his familiar phrases, which your kids will repeat over and over and over as they run around the house roaring. Batteries are included. Fortunately, Kion comes with an off switch. Unfortunately, kids don't. They're for ages 3 to 6, under 22 bucks at Amazon.com and other retailers. Kitty Surprise, Sienna and her kittens from Just Play. Sienna is pregnant. How many kittens will she have? Three, four, five? And will they be boys or girls? Well, just like with a real cat, you'll have to wait to find out. Just so you know, one in four packages has four or five kittens. The rest have three. When Sienna finally does give birth, which you'll help by taking the kittens out of her pouch, you'll find a litter of adorable plush kittens with plastic heads. 
at least one of which will meow. They're for ages 2 and up, cost under $25 at major retailers. Twinkle, the magical unicorn from VTech. Twinkle is part of VTech's go-go smart friends world. She moves her head, walks, talks, and flaps her wings, and all she asks in return is a nibble of her golden magic carrot. If you're especially nice, her horn will light up and change colors. This playset comes with Prisma, the magic fairy, and the golden carrot, and interacts with other smart friends' characters, which are sold separately. Limited life batteries are included. It's for ages 18 months to 5 years, costs under 20 bucks at Amazon and elsewhere. You can find reviews of a lot more toys and games that are wonderful ways to spend time with your kids and the rest of your family at parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with a completely brand new Parents at Play show for you. Hey, but you know what? Don't go anywhere, please, because there's a lot more of this positive parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life, young adults of unique determination and experience, an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Mr. Dad Armin Brott, and I'm glad you stayed with us. I'm sorry are the two most powerful words in the English language. When these words are part of a heartfelt apology, they are the greatest gift that we can give to the hurt party, to a relationship, or maybe even to ourselves. Yet the complicated dance between the offender and the offended often goes badly. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Harriet Lerner, who has spent a couple of decades studying the art of the apology. She's going to be talking to us about how much the apology matters and why we so often muck it up. A meaningful apology can restore trust, but silence and defensiveness can cause excruciating pain. At the same time, the pressure to forgive may only deepen the original injury and could even re-traumatize the hurt party. Whether we're talking about something as trivial as shopping for bananas or as serious as betraying a friend or a family member, we're going to learn what a heartfelt apology requires and how we can restore compromised and broken relationships. The courage to apologize and the wisdom to do it well is at the heart of effective leadership, marriage, parenting, friendship, personal integrity, and pretty much everything that we call love. And in this show, we're going to show you the right way to do it. And it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. This is Mario Andretti. You know me as a race car driver, but I'm also a Meals on Wheels volunteer. I've raced against the sport's biggest personalities, but I've never met more vibrant, amazing people than the seniors served by Meals on Wheels. 
You can make a difference by dropping off a hot meal and saying a quick hello. So, America, let's do lunch. Volunteer your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Harriet Lerner, who is the author of Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. Harriet, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's talk about something that I think people may think that they understand, but they may not understand completely. What is an apology? Well, an apology. A good apology, a true apology, would include accepting responsibility for our part of a problem without a hint of evasion or excuse-making or blaming or bringing up the other person's crime sheet, even when the other person can't do the same, you know, when they cannot see their own part of the problem. But, of course, apologies differ. There are some apologies that are very simple to make and others that are far more difficult. Now, years ago, I remember interviewing somebody, and we were talking about apologies from a different perspective. But, but she was saying that an apology needs to have several pieces, that, that just saying I'm sorry is not enough, that there needs to be an additional I'm never going to, you know, if I'm in this situation again, I'm going to do something differently kind of a thing, as opposed to just the words, I'm sorry, that it's, it's deeper than that. What do you think about that type of an approach? I think that if it's a very simple thing, like you spill red wine on your friend's carpet, that a real heartfelt, I'm sorry, and offering to pay the cleaning bill, if there is one, is enough. Not all of our hurts are simple. So very often, I'm sorry is only a start, and that we need to really put aside our defensiveness and listen with an open heart to the hurts party, the hurt party's anger and pain, because what the injured party really wants is not just the words, I'm sorry, they they want us to really get it, to really care about their feelings. They want to feel safe and soothed in the relationship again and, um, and know that we will carry some of the pain, that we can feel some remorse and empathy, and that we will be committed to not continuing the very behavior that we're apologizing for. So, yes, I agree. You know, it's a lot more than the words, I'm very sorry. And sometimes it goes on for a much longer period of time than just however long it takes you to get those thoughts out, right? I mean, you you could be apologizing to somebody, depending on the severity of, of whatever happened, you could be apologizing for years. Well, exactly, so that... Um, an apology should not be used as a quick way out of a conversation. Like, 
I've told you seven times that I'm sorry about the affair, so why are you bringing it up a year later and you're still bringing it up? That, um, as you're saying, a serious hurt or a serious injury requires us really to sit on the hot seat and pay attention to the hurt party's anger and pain, often for quite a while, a very long time. Does the recipient of an apology have any obligations, do you think? I don't know if obligation is the right word, but often people who desperately want an apology actually make it much likely, that they make it less likely that the apology will be forthcoming. Like a party, for example, the hurt party has a real grievance, but they so overtalk it, they so overload the circuits, they bring up the other person's crime sheet in such a way that really the other person just vacates the emotional premises, you know, after about a minute. So I, I think that it's useful for the person who wants the apology to understand that how we open the conversation really makes a difference because people are wired for defensiveness. And if you engage in hit-and-run confrontations because you want this apology, then you are probably guaranteed to get a very defensive response. Why is it so hard for people to apologize? It's hard for people to apologize because we are wired for defensiveness. So that when we're criticized, we automatically listen defensively, meaning we automatically listen for the errors, the inaccuracies, uh, the distortions that will inevitably be there. In other words, we listen for what we don't agree with. And it really takes a lot of intention and motivation and maturity, and really caring about the relationship to listen differently, to listen for the part that we really can agree with, and to apologize for that piece first. And we can come back in another conversation, and often it's essential to have another conversation where we say, look, let me tell you what I see differently um, about what you were saying. But that ability to open up our hearts and put our defensiveness on a shelf and really have the intention of asking questions to better understand what the hurt party wants us to get is very hard when the hurt party is saying that we caused it and we don't necessarily agree. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering about. It. I mean, you know, getting back to the idea of whether the the uh, injured party has any obligations. You know, there's a point where if you keep throwing it back in somebody's face, you just don't want to be there anymore. Whether you're sincerely apologizing or not, it just, you know, it's at some point you say enough already. Well, better than saying enough already, because I think that happens a lot. It can happen 
in marriage. It can happen in family relationships, uh, mother and son or father and son, where a person just feels worn down, you know, by sort of corrosive criticism and someone bringing something up again and again. And it actually does not hurt to muzzle someone. It does, I mean, it does, I'm sorry, it does not help to muzzle someone and to say, look, you know, this subject is now off limits. I will not talk about it again. It's not useful. It is useful to say, I know this is really important, and I'm here to listen to you for anything for as long as it takes, but not in this way that you need to approach me differently and more calmly and with respect and I'm here to listen. It helps to say, you know, I really can't listen when every time I walk in the door, you're bringing up, you know, that you're still mad about how I, you know, treated your mother. But it does help to say, I can't listen every time I walk in the door. Let's set up a time on Sunday, you know, after we have breakfast, and let's get a cup of coffee, and I want to listen to everything that you have to say about it. So I, um, it actually is not helpful in an important relationship to just rule the other person's anger and pain off limits forever. Is there such a thing as too much apologizing? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> And you know the the biggest risk factor for being an un, for being an under apologizer is being raised male, and the biggest risk factor for being an over apologizer is being raised female. So if some folks can't get the word "I'm sorry" out of their mouths, others apologize to a fault. <clears throat> as if they went to Miss Manners Apology Finishing <laughs> School, you know, with all these ref reflexive little, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, you were going to sit there. I'm so sorry. Oh, you were looking at that menu. Oh, I interrupted you. I'm so sorry. So whatever the cause, it's good to tone over-apologizing down. And if you've forgotten to return your friend's Tupperware, <laughs> you don't have to apologize numerous times as if you've run over her kitten. And over-apologizing creates distance. It interrupts the normal flow of conversation, and it will irritate your friends. So it's good to um, save your apologies for when they really matter. Yeah. Talking with Harriet Lerner, who is the author of Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Betrayals, Big Betrayals, and Everyday Hurts. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Harriet. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Harriet Lerner, who's the author of Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. We're just talking about the, some male and female differences. D do you think there's a difference between an apology and excuse me? Because they seem to almost be interchangeable in some circumstances. You know, somebody bumps into you on the street, and, and the natural reaction for a lot of people is to say, oh, excuse me, or I'm sorry. 
Um, well, are, are they some, different? If, if someone bumps into you in the street or runs into you with their shopping cart in the grocery store, for me, it would not make a difference if they said, I'm sorry, or they said, excuse me. But obviously, if we're talking about something that really hurts your feelings or is important or something that there needs to be a conversation about, excuse me, does not quite fit. All right. I want to talk about a little bit about the, the wording of an apology because that's such a um, it's an art form. And I mean, you've been studying this for decades. But you know, there's people who, who will say the words in a way that when you think about it, it really is, is blaming it in, in a sense. You know, I, I'm sorry you feel that way. Has always exactly. struck me as something that that is just. <laughs> you know, what do you mean? You're sorry. I feel that way. It's you know. How about you're sorry you you made me feel that way, or you know whatever it is. But you know, to talk about the the wording. Well, there are so many different ways with language that we muck up an apology. The most common is I'm sorry, but I'm sorry I yelled at you, but you provoked me. I'm sorry I forgot your birthday, but I was so overloaded with work I forgot everything. It doesn't matter if what you say after the but is true. The word but makes the apology false and almost always signals a rationalization, an excuse, or a criticism. So rule number one, get your but out of your apologies. And the second thing is the one you were mentioning, which is more blame-reversing, where a, a real apology focuses on our behavior, not on the other person's feelings or reactions. So it is a non-apology to say, I'm really sorry that you took what I said to be racist and sexist. That was not my intention. I'm sorry you felt hurt when I criticize your stories at the party, that is not an apology. There's no accountability. The real apology would be, I'm sorry that I criticize your stories at the party. It was wrong because you told me that you didn't like that. And I feel very badly about it, and I will not do it again. So... You know, and then we also muck up an apology by apologizing with a great flourish, but we repeat the very behavior we're apologizing for and <laughs> and so forth. So really, there are so many ways to get it wrong. One way I think that we get it wrong is it, it's used as a, or it's seen as a sign of weakness, I think, in some people. And those people would be particularly parents. A lot of people don't feel that they should be apologizing to their kids for anything. What do you think about that? I think that is a terrible idea. First of all, your children are watching you, and if you don't offer a heartfelt apology to your child when it's due, you know, how will they learn to apologize? But more importantly, you know, this idea that apologizing to kids undercuts our authority or makes us look weak and uncertain is a false idea. Apologizing 
to children models a stronger approach to the world. It shows an ability to orient to reality that reflects a concern for fairness. And it's really important. I mean, actually, the ability to apologize is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our kids because children have a very strong sense of justice. And children suffer, just as, a, as we do in adult relationships, when a parent's defensiveness invalidates what the child knows to be true or mm. real. So working, for example, when I, when I work with adults, as I've done for decades, who have serious injuries and traumas from childhood or, or trauma with a small t, what's actually the trauma is that the adults did not orient toward the reality of what was happening. They, they, the child might have been told that the bad thing was not really happening, that his feelings and perceptions were wrong, out of proportion, or that what happened was necessary, or even the child's fault, something he did to uh, bring on the difficult behavior. And, and that's the, the trauma that the parent was not able to say. And to this day, you know, when they confront the parent, might not be able to say, your feelings make perfect sense. And what went on was wrong. And, of course, it affected you. And I wish I could go back in time. You know, I'm so terribly sorry, and I wish... I could go back in time and mm. and do better and do differently, but um, I get it. You know, I really yeah. get it. And what about the words that a lot of parents say quite often, I think with the, the well-intentioned belief that they're going to be teaching their kids to do this, say you're sorry, we say to our kids. Do you think that that's well, helpful? Or do, do, is there some way to get them to reach the conclusion on their own that something happened that they need to apologize for? I actually am of the theory from my own research with families that it's absolutely fine the same way we try to teach our kids to say thank you, you know, um, that it's fine to say I would like you to apologize. The problem really comes in. Here's where the problem comes in that when the child apologizes, and it's not necessarily sincere at that moment because they've been asked to do it, that the parent does not say, thank you for the apology, I really appreciate it, hmm. and, and stop there. Instead, the parent says things like, um, you know, thank you for the apology, I really appreciate it, but it would be much better next time if I didn't really have to ask you for it. And by the way, that apology doesn't seem real, and you're looking down at your shoes, I want you to look your brother in the eye, and you apologize like you really mean it, and then go to your room and think, you know, think about how your brother felt when you left him out of the game. And kids tell me, that they, they learn to hate apologizing. It feels so shaming and dreadful. And, you know, many kids say they just want to put their fingers in their ears, you know, and get out of the room 
because it's so hard for the parent who says, you know, I'd like you to say you're sorry, and the kid says, I'm sorry, to just say thank you for the apology Hmm. and leave it there. Now, you can go back and, you know, and of course further conversation may be necessary, but you can do that at another time and not in a way that disqualifies the child's the child's apology and makes the child feel what's the point only have just about a minute left i just want you to talk about how the recipient of an apology or would be recipient of apology can deal with never getting it when you want it well this is life this is the human condition that even the people who were there to love and protect us make terrible mistakes and are not not able to see it you know not able to listen to our feelings and you know get past the defensiveness and it um, you know, it's interesting to me, and I talk about this a great deal in the book. I have a chapter called You Need to Forgive and Other Lies That Hurt You. <laughs> right. Be- right, because um, there is a myth in this culture that there can be no peace or healing without forgiveness, and that forgiveness is the uh, you know the magic path, the only path to a life that's not mired down in bitterness and hate, and this is simply not true, and it, it's actually not a useful thing to tell people. Oh, you you know you really need to forgive your father. It happened a long time ago. You need to move forward into the future, and he did the best he could. I mean, all these things that actually deepen the original injury. So it's very important to understand that there's no one path to peace or healing. And for some people, forgiveness is part of their worldview or their spirituality or their religion, and that's fine. For other people, it is not useful to deny their legitimate anger or rush into a premature forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So I do want to say that you do not need to forgive a person who has hurt you in order to free yourself from the pain of right. negative emotions. Harriet Lerner is the author of Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. Harriet, thanks so much. Great to have Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.